Let's Trap on Show, episode 68. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and today's episode is about block periodization in triathlon, which is one of the newer methods of periodizing your triathlon training. The training nerds out there have been jumping at the bit for a more technical and scientific episode now that we haven't had one in the last few weeks. And today I got you covered. This one definitely fits the bill for both technical and scientific. So buckle up, my friends. The structure of today's episode is we'll cover first defining and explaining what block periodization really is, what it looks like, and how it's different from traditional periodization approaches. So traditional linear periodization and also reverse periodization, which is common these days. What are the potential benefits and the reasoning behind why block periodization may be better than traditional periodization? So going into the background the the theory so to say about block periodization and then of course we'll be digging up the results from research studies about block periodized training and especially those that have compared it to traditional periodized training and uh, next i'll cover the application of block periodization for triathletes what kind of triathletes should consider block periodizing their training and how do you go about it in the sport of triathlon And finally, we'll finish off with some takeaway messages, including the question marks around block periodization and potential limitations of the the method. So I think that's about it for an intro. Let's get started with defining block periodization. What is block periodization? So... I guess that the, let's start with the father of block periodization is Vladimir Isurin, and he does, does work at the university in Israel. I actually don't know which country he comes from, but he's written most of the most extensive reviews and, and also some of the uh, controlled studies about block periodization. And uh, a lot of this can be found in his most recent review, which I think is really good. And I'll link to it in the show notes. And it's called Benefits and Limitations of Block Periodized Training Approaches to Athletes' Preparation Review. And that was published in 2015 in Sports Medicine. Again, as I said, if you're interested in the science, go to the show notes on thattriathlonshow.com, which may be a day or two late, by the way. I'll talk a bit about that later. But... uh, in a couple of days after you hear this on Thursday, we will have those linked up. So first, to start off with, there are two types of block periodized training. The concentrated unidirectional training model, which is really only relevant and beneficial when training just one ability at a time. So for example, jumping sports, where you only really need uh, strength slash power and speed. Those are the only the only abilities you need to train and you can do one at a time. But in endurance sports, there are more abilities than that. So we will from now on talk only about the other type of block periodized training, which is multi-targeted block periodized training models. And uh, all of the research studies that I'll cite in this episode are that kind of model. And that's what we'll focus on from now on. There are no 
essentially no evidence that the concentrated unidirectional model works in endurance sports. It's mainly jumping sports and similar sports where we've had good results with that. But uh, yeah, so again, we'll talk about the multi-targeted block periodized training model from now on, just to make that clear. And what block periodized training is in this form is it consists of blocks lasting usually two to four or two to six weeks, depending a bit on uh, which author you read. And each block corresponds to a single mesocycle. And these mesocycles each include a highly concentrated workload directed at a minimal number of different training modalities and training different abilities. So unlike traditional mixed programs that are directed at at working different abilities at the same time or many different training modalities, the block-periodized training system uses consecutive development of abilities. So you would do one block and focus on just a small number of abilities or even just one and then do a second block following that where you would target a different ability and the aim here is to get the optimal interaction and superposition of these uh, of these blocks and you might say that well isn't that what we do in traditional periodization and to an extent yes but if you think about many training plans uh, i know at least uh, from my coaching that there's always in, or in most cases, uh, a nice mixture of different things. Even if it's a, a period dedicated to more base training, there's a little bit of speed there maybe and, and some, some other things come into play. But in block periodization, you get rid of all of those extra training modalities and focus on just the one or two things that you're trying to develop. So, so if you really think hard about it, it, even though it at first glance may seem like you're traditionally periodized training plan is uh, doing what i just described training just a limited number of abilities at one time block periodization takes it to more of an extreme if you want to to call it that so uh, in traditional block periodization we have three different types of mesocycles and the first is the accumulation mesocycle which focuses on basic abilities so for endurance athletes that might be aerobic endurance muscle strength and general technique or coordination. Then the next, meso- so that was the accumulation, which uh, indicates a uh, high volume also. And then the next is the transmutation phase, which focuses on sport-specific abilities. So in this example, I read some of this from, from the Isurin review. It might be high-intensity anaerobic workloads, not so much for triathletes, I would say. Strength endurance, yes, that's, that's relevant. Strength endurance or muscular endurance. And, and so on. So more sport-specific abilities for the sport that you're training for. Again, for triathletes, maybe muscular endurance would be, would be the best example of that. But depending on your limitations, it might be something different. But the point here being that you're focusing on something more intense and uh, it is highly concentrated still. It might be that you actually want to try to improve your VO2 max and you do a highly concentrated workload of VO2 max workouts. So that's entirely feasible in this transmutation phase, which is the hardest of the phases. And then finally, we have the realization phase or mesocycle, which focuses on recovery and peaking towards uh, competition. So again, as I mentioned, two to four or maybe two to six weeks are is what each of these mesocycles are in length. So uh, you try to 
to maintain everything that you got from the the previous mesocycle in in the coming mesocycles by working on not having too long mesocycles so that the residual training effect effect is maintained and and also you want to in each mesocycle you want to as much as possible optimize what you gain from it by having compatible training methods modalities and compatible energy systems that you train and and not have any physiological conflicting physiologically conflicting responses so for example you might have uh, a case where highly anaerobic or or a lactic training for example conflicts with with building aerobic endurance so you wouldn't want to have those two kinds of energy or three different kinds of energy systems in the same mesocycle so uh, a basic knowledge of physiology physiology and exercise science is good to have here and the three block mesocycles that i mentioned the accumulation transmutation and realization blocks they are then joined together and uh, form a training stage that lasts around about two months and uh, usually ends with participation in a competition or a race so so that's it and then the annual cycle then consists of these two month or so training stages and uh there can be maybe five or six or seven of them, depending again on how long your mesocycles are. And you can time your mesocycles and joining these three mesocycles together with your uh, competitions and, your, and races. And that's one of the biggest advantages of block periodization, that you actually have a great way to, to peak for each of your key races. So I already mentioned a few of the benefits compared to traditional periodization. I might have mentioned all of them, but just to quickly reiterate and make it very clear what I just said about peaking for many different races throughout the season. That's one of the big advantages of block periodization compared to traditional periodization. Uh, the other thing is that you actually try to, in the mesocycles, train the abilities and modalities, as uh, as Isurin calls it, that are compatible with each other so that you don't have inhibiting training approaches that you do concurrently. So, so that's the second one. Then we also have the fact that since you're working with short mesocycles, you try to use the residual training effect window to your advantage. So for example, something like aerobic endurance may have a residual training effect of 30 days, whereas something like very electric, uh, which is a very high speed, high intensity energy system uh, that has a residual training effect of, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it could be a week or 10 days or something. And so different abilities have different residual effects and and you try to use the shorter mesocycles in in block periodization to your advantage to always maintain all of your abilities whereas in traditional periodization although yes you may mix things but there are also usually times in most training programs where some abilities may go unattended for let's say two months or so and then you essentially lose almost you lose a lot of it so so that's one thing that block periodization it can't entirely fix it because some abilities are just so short-lived and their residual training effect is short but it can potentially improve on how long you can maintain different abilities compared to traditional periodization 
And finally, but very importantly, we also have the fact that almost all block periodization research comes from elite or very well-trained athletes. And in this group of athletes, they need a very, very large uh, stimulus to actually improve. And a traditional training program with a mixed approach to training might not be enough of a stimulus to, to actually provide that increase in fitness. So the highly concentrated workloads in especially the transmutation mesocycle might be that stimulus that these athletes need to actually improve. And on the flip side of this, in a traditional training program, uh, there may be a tendency to, when you get to a stage when you don't improve as a high-performing athlete, you try to just increase the amount of training by doing more of what you're currently doing which contains th- this mixed approach already so you have both volume and intensity and you just try to do more of it which can easily lead to overtraining whereas in block periodization you might just focus on in the transmutation phase on on highly intense training so the volume is drastically smaller than it would be in those other weeks so even though yes you do a very a lot of high intense training and uh, you have a high training stress but it might be lower in total than than what you would do with those athletes at the highest level that uh, try to just do a bit more to to get that breakthrough in performance that they're looking for. So so you might reduce the risk of overtraining through just that temptation to try to do more and more as you get to a plateau with traditional periodization models. So now let's talk a bit about the results that block periodization can bring about and has brought about in athletes and in our case especially endurance athletes of course. I want to just quickly mention some of the history of block periodization. It started in the 80s and uh, one of the first successful examples of applying block periodization is from Hammerthrow where Dr. Anatoly Bondarchuk coached the winners in the hammer throw at both the 1988 and 1992 olympic games so that's one of the one of the pioneering examples then we had uh, kayaking and and canoeing canoe paddlers uh, that had several different examples of of people using block periodization or teams using block periodization and having great success uh, for example the ussr national team that uh, had three gold and three silver medals in 1988 and eight and nine gold medals in the world championships of 89 and 90 and from the more familiar world perhaps of swimming we have uh, one of the more renowned coaches Gennady Turetsky he actually coached Alexander Popov, who I guess many of you have heard about, five-time Olympic champion and also multiple world and European champion. And uh, another athlete that he coached was Michael Klim from Australia, two-time Olympic champion and multiple world champion. Uh, and uh, they seem to have used a sort of block periodization, although there's not too much uh, documented about that. But uh, they had multiple, each annual cycle was divided into a number of stages lasting 6 to 12 weeks, uh, where each one consisted of four training blocks. So so not the three that we've been talking about, but similar to, to, what we, to block periodization, essentially. But uh, from more researched and uh, scientific evidence there isn't a lot uh, i should say from uh, from the get-go 
most of them are summarized in uh, the paper by Isurin, the review paper that I mentioned that I will link to in the show notes page on thatdraftonshow.com. And uh, let me see here. There are quite a few of them are actually from the canoeing examples mentioned above, and they are among the best because they have enough participants in them and they are long-term. So they are one, two or three years or seasons. So so that's actually among the better evidence that we have. And they have compared block periodization with traditional periodization and found uh, a superiority of the block periodized program. So so that's that's pretty good and very interesting. It's also an endurance sport. So although very different from triathlon, it has relevance for us. Then the other one, which is more recent, because most of these are from the late 80s or early 90s, if I remember correctly. Actually, one of them was newer. But anyway, more recent and even more relevant is a Norwegian study from 2014 by a researcher called uh, Rennestad. And I'll actually try to have this guy on the show, because uh, it was very well conducted, that study. And it's uh, the one that I've read myself most intensely uh, when i done my research or prep for, for this podcast episode. So as I said, we'll talk about this in more detail, but, uh, but it was a three-month study in cyclists, very well-trained, but not elite. And, uh, and they also found a superior effect of block periodization compared to more traditional uh, mixed training and traditional periodization. So, so that's about most the most the key takeaway studies, I should say. And there are a small number of additional studies that are listed in the Isurium paper, and I've also done my own uh, research and see if I can find anything additional. But for endurance sports, there isn't a whole lot more. Uh, a few of the ones that are listed, in my opinion, don't provide sufficient evidence or they're not relevant, either because they're too short, for example, one month. When studying periodization, I don't think that one month is a sufficient time window, or they don't have a large enough, enough number of participants. They might be case studies, for example. So as you can see, the amount of evidence isn't huge, although you can make the claim that the case studies existing do add if they are comparing block periodization with traditional, which some of them have. But the promising thing is that all of the studies that exist have shown superiority of block periodization compared to traditional periodization. And, and this also includes those studies that I said aren't really on their own worth considering. But um, in context, when you think that no study has shown that traditional periodization would bring about better results than block periodization, it does say something, I think, although there's no conclusive evidence. I'm, I think that that's pretty clear at this point, in my opinion. Uh, Isurin might have a different opinion, but it's not conclusive, but it's promising. And um, there's also a lot of studies, or quite a lot of studies, from non-endurance sports that I won't talk about here in any more detail, but they're out there in both team sports like handball, football, and strength training, quite a lot in strength training. And I could actually link to one of those, because that was a pretty recent one and a pretty good one uh, so so there are studies from other fields than endurance sports that also support this notion that block periodization may be better than traditional periodization but let's go into a bit more detail on that norwegian study in sub-elite cyclists that i mentioned and uh, as i said it's uh, conducted by a researcher called rönnestad and his colleagues in 2014 and it's called 
Effects of 12 weeks of block periodization on performance and performance indices in well-trained cyclists. And it was published in the Scandinavian Journal of Medicine, Science and Sports. And uh, so let's explain first some terms. Statistically significant, you probably know what it is. Uh, but trending to a trend, it means that it's close to statistical significance, but not quite. So for example, you might define that you need a 95% confidence that a hypothesis is true for something to be statistically significant. But if you have a 90%, but not quite 95% confidence, then you might say that something is trending towards something. So because I will talk about these things now that I covered the results that this study had. So the study had 18 well-trained cyclists and the volume of high-intensity training and low-intensity training was uh, almost exactly the same in both groups in total. But the block periodized group conducted one week of five high-intensity training sessions followed by three weeks of one high-intensity training session and then the rest focusing on low-intensity training and this four-week block was repeated three times, or actually was a one-week block and then a three-week block, and, and that was repeated three times to make up 12 weeks in total. And the traditional group did, throughout, they did two high-intensity training sessions per week, and uh, interspersed with that, obviously, a relatively high number of low-intensity training to make sure that both the high-intensity high intensity and low intensity amount of training in perform in both groups was equal and they used heart rate to classify intensity but also had power meters to to measure performance and uh, what else the high intensity sessions alternated between six times five and five times six minutes uh, in uh, above threshold intensity uh, let's see what else. Yeah, so what they measured was VO2 max and blood lactate profile testing, both before and after, and a 40-minute time trial. And also hemoglobin mass, which is uh, a big component of VO2 max. So, so those are among the most important things that they measured, both before and after the 12-week period. So the results that they had was that there were no differences between the groups before in uh, in terms of these variables that they measured. And uh, then some of the results after was that VO2 max was statistically significant in favor of block periodization. They had an 8.8% increase, which is a lot, compared to a 3.7% increase in the traditional group. So that is still quite a lot, a good amount, but uh, but not as much as in the block periodized training. The power at VO2 max increased by 6.2% in the block periodized group and 3.5% in the traditional group. And this was trending, not quite statistically significant, but trending. No significant difference for hemoglobin mass or relative hemoglobin mass i should say the block periodized group did increase it with 5.6 percent versus just 1.2 percent in the traditional group but the large variance uh, among or across individuals made it not statistically significant and not even trending there was however a trend towards higher power at two millimoles of lactate per liter of blood which is uh, usually defined as the aerobic threshold so that was the power at this aerobic threshold was uh, 22% a 22% relative improvement in the block periodized group compared to 10% in the traditional group and there was uh, 
a trend towards the power output difference in the 40 minutes time trial. So 8.2% of improvement in the block periodized group and 4.1% in the traditional group. But again, due to the quite small number of participants and a relatively large variance, it was only trending and not statistically significant. Also, one more thing, the perceived well-being in the legs was worse in the blocks periodized group in the harder weeks. So in other words, they were knackered in those weeks, which is understandable to say the least with five highly intense sessions. So to conclude, or the conclusions that the authors make actually in this study is that block periodization seems very promising, but need needs larger studies. And uh, in this study, block periodization was found to have superior effects on several endurance and performance indices compared with traditional periodization. And uh, the effect size of the relative improvement in all measured parameters revealed a moderate effect of block periodized training versus traditional training. That's a bit of statistical geekery with effect size, but a moderate effect in this case is actually in endurance sports is something that is very, very much worth considering because even if you have a weak effect, it's usually worth considering because at the pointy end, you are looking for marginal gains. So uh, one of the conclusions uh, that I want to bring up still is that, again, these were highly trained athletes and uh, the authors as well conclude that larger stimuli might be necessary to achieve further improvements. And that block of high intensity training with five sessions per week during the the high high intensity blocks is likely to explain the favorable adaptation to block periodization. So now let's talk about how to apply this and the application of block periodization for triathletes. First, who is block periodization for? And that's definitely very well-trained triathletes. All research in endurance sports has been done in elite or very well-trained athletes for block periodization, I should say. So you should be pretty experienced and among the faster in your age group at this point, I would say. This may change if more research is done in the future but at this point i wouldn't recommend it for somebody who isn't at the the top end fighting for podiums in their age group or or at least being in the let's say first 10 percent or so and also another thing to consider is that you need to have time to do volume in the accumulation block because it's dependent on that aerobic endurance is one of the basic abilities of triathlon it's uh, a no-brainer that that's what you need to do in the accumulation block and you need to do volume if you are to follow this program so if you're restricted to 10 hours per week or less then this is probably not for you next how do you actually do it and this actually depends a lot on your goal races so work backwards from your goal races and Try to fit in the accumulation, transmutation, and realization mesocycles of various lengths. They they don't always need to be the same length between each goal race. And if you have a long time between goal races, then repeat this cycle multiple times. So, for example, you might just repeat, like, there might be four weeks each. And, and if you have, what is it? Uh, 24 weeks between two Ironman races, for example, then you would repeat this cycle two times. So, and it might even be just one week, as in the cyclist study that we just talked about, with one high-intensity training week. So, so you don't need to consider this as uh, any bible or anything. You can experiment with it, but and and I think that that study is a good example of it. And just having one week of high-intensity training might be actually 
better and safer and a better and safer way to do this. So in the blocks themselves, as I mentioned, the accumulation block, you need to have volume and you need to work your basic abilities. So I'd suggest aerobic endurance definitely through long, slow distance training, zones one and two, if you use a five zone system. And uh, also on top of that uh, technique, which is part of your aerobic endurance training as well in, to some extent. And strength training, I would also put as your basic ability. So those three would go into the accumulation block. And uh, strength endurance or maximum strength, you could go either way there for your strength training, either low reps, high weight, or high reps, low weight. Did I get that right? Well, you get what I'm... I I think that you get what I'm saying there. Anyway, so you could go either way with, with this, depending on where your strength training limiters are. But I think that, well, strength and technique and aerobic endurance, they are all the basic abilities of triathlon, so they should go into your accumulation block. And nothing more, no interval workouts or anything. Just that, if you want to do block periodization. And uh, yeah, so did you hear me? No interval training. All right. Then transmutation block, depending on your athletic profile, it could be muscular endurance workouts, but it could also be VO2 max workouts. So in triathlon, muscular endurance is uh, definitely a competition-specific ability that is very important. So I would say that for the majority of listeners, this transmutation block may be a whole lot of muscular endurance training. And you could do things like the classic 3 times 20 minute intervals on the bike and the like. And so your volume drops significantly and you focus on just those highly intense sessions uh, of muscular endurance in the three disciplines. Uh, but again, as I said, if you feel that your VO2 max is holding you back, you might have done some lab testing actually to come to that conclusion, then you might do a VO2 max block. And finally, the realization block, it's uh, some race intensity, but of pretty low volume, so a classic taper and good recovery. That's it, essentially. One more thing to consider in the application for triathletes is how to think about the three disciplines, swimming, biking, and running. Should you do the same type of training in all three disciplines in the same block? And I don't think that there's a right or wrong answer here, or at least there's no answer out there, no proven answer out there at the moment. Physiologically, doing specialized work like anaerobic endurance training or even speed endurance in one discipline can affect how you perform in training in other disciplines. For example, in your your speed endurance in running or swimming might affect your muscular endurance training in biking, and it can be detrimental. Uh, for for one thing, your n- nervous system might need longer to recover. So my t- intuition my intuition would be to say yes, you should aim to stress the same energy systems the same abilities in all three disciplines in the same blocks. But uh, again, this leads to the fact that you may need to be pretty advanced to do this type of block periodized training. You need to be strong across the board in swimming, biking and running. So finally, the takeaway message is block periodized training has huge potential. It's very promising, I would say, and the current evidence indicates that block periodized training may be a better way to periodize than traditional periodization. And although no direct comparisons have been done, I would say that uh, because reverse periodization is similar to linear periodization, reverse periodization is essentially reverse linear periodization. This applies to reverse periodization as well, that block periodized training may be 
more beneficial for advanced athletes. It's uh, fantastic for structuring your annual periodization around multiple peaks in and around races and competition, which is always a challenge and for triathletes a highly relevant thing. How do you peak for multiple races? But as I said, this is for well-trained athletes, not for beginners or even intermediate, intermediate athletes, at least not based on our current knowledge. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend trying this out and experimenting with it for an advanced athlete, at least if you're in a bit of a plateau and you feel that you're not improving at the moment. However, if you are improving with what you're currently doing, I do not think that you should jump ships right now and change your approach. Wait until you hit a plateau, because if it ain't broke, don't fix it, at least not in this case. <laughs> I don't necessarily agree with that notion in all cases, but but in this case, I would say that uh, the potential gain, it's not clear enough. There's not enough evidence to jump ships immediately if you are improving with what you're doing. As for limitations, as I said, there's definitely not enough research yet to make any conclusive uh, conclusions. And we also need more research specifically in endurance sports and uh, definitely larger studies with at least 30 to 40 participants. And a lot of the research that is labeled block periodized training is way too short of a time period to be relevant. So an example is an 11-day study in alpine skiers in terms of their endurance, but and that was included in the Isodin review, but we can't consider those kinds of studies relevant because that's just... That's just a crash block of training, like a training camp. So for investigating periodization, I would say that three months that was used in Renestad's study on cyclists is the absolute minimum. And there are also some question marks as for how well this works in multi-sport like triathlon. So does something like muscular endurance training count as one ability? Or does it count as three abilities since we have muscular endurance in swimming, in biking and in running? So should we actually think about it the other way around and focus the blocks not on energy systems and abilities but rather on the different disciplines uh, so having a swim block a bike block and a run block and i don't think there's an answer to that at this point so we'll rely on experimentation on ourselves and finding what works for us at this point one final thing is that you need to always be mindful of the residual training effect when planning your training in a block periodized fashion so you don't build an ability up but lose all of the games by the time competition rolls around. And this may require some knowledge of exercise science and physiology. So I hope that this technical and scientific episode was enjoyable for you and not too difficult. But if it was, please, please send me emails and ask for clarification to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's michael with a K. And uh, you can also hit me up on Twitter as usual, and that's at SciTriat. You can also send me, of course, other questions, and I may answer them in an email or on the show, in future Q&A episodes, perhaps. The show notes for this episode will be on thattriathlonshow.com as usual, but they may be a day later too, since I actually had a freak earplug incident yesterday, which was Tuesday, the Tuesday before this episode is released, and uh, my earplug that I had in during the night got stuck in my ear, and I couldn't get it out in the morning, so I had to waste a lot of time on Tuesday trying to find a hospital in Portugal that would see me and uh, get my earplug out once I actually was in the doctor's office and not the eye, the eye doctor which uh, I first got sent to but actually the ear doctor's 
office then it was a two-minute thing to do it but uh, but i actually spent a lot of time on that so i'm running a bit late with this episode but uh, again the show notes will be up in a couple of days and uh, i want to thank all you guys who have been rating and reviewing the podcast in the last few weeks uh it's always put a big fat smile on my face when I see that you appreciate the work that I'm doing here. And I must say a big thank you, kudos to the Americans. You have been particularly good at reviewing the show recently. So I would issue a challenge to the rest of the world world to keep up with the Americans because even when adjusted for listenership, you're way behind. And I'm maybe especially looking at Australia and Canada here. So this is a bit of a challenge to the Australian and Canadian listeners to go and write a rating and review for the show. And I make it very easy for you if you're not sure how to do it by giving you the instructions on scientifictriathlon.com forward slash rate. You can go there and it's in the show notes also in your podcast player app. You will see in the episode description the link to that and uh, you can see how you rate and review the show. Somebody who did write a review was Dean, who writes, Phenomenal try information, five stars. As a 40-something age grouper who is new to triathlon, I have found Michael's podcast invaluable. Great topics, fantastic guests, and really usable, no-nonsense information that has really helped my beginnings into the sport. Thanks, Michael. And thank you, Dean. And we've actually interacted in the past and it's a great pleasure to do so. And I wish you all the best with your continued triathlon training and racing. And to all of you listeners, thank you as always for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon. <laughs>